0: Landline radio, landline radio, high energy, no
1: filter. Oh yeah! All
0: right, folks, I'm back again for the second time with former Governor Frank Murkowski. How you doing, Governor Murkowski?
1: Nice day. You can't beat it with a stick. Uh, we're getting a little heat this summer all over. First time was Juneau,
0: uh during the session our podcast. Now you're here in Anchorage. I just, your daughter just spoke at the Commonwealth North um, right. meeting. You, you got the first question.
1: Yeah, I got the first question. I didn't get the first answer, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, she gave a pretty good presentation, I thought, covering, you know, what's going on in Anchorage and staying away from the dilemma we have here in Alaska, which is uh, probably appropriate that she do because uh, that's not her bag. Her bag's fed. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. You've uh, written some op-eds
0: lately. Um, and some former governors kind of about what's going on, and I want to ask you about that um, okay, in general about what's happening in Alaska, and then talk a little bit about you know when you were governor and some of the you know problems you, you faced and how you dealt with the legislature
1: well you probably you pick up your problems as you go along, and uh, you know in this particular case, the state's situation is such that uh, the governor has proposed significant cuts. And I don't think most Alaskans really recognized uh, the consequences. And the legislature didn't advise Alaskans, nor did the governor, that, hey, when you make drastic cuts, there's a cost to it. And uh, there's an impact associated on the service level that government is able to provide. and. Uh, uh, you know, hindsight's really cheap. I've been there as governor and we've made decisions. We've been crit- criticized for them. Some have been the right decision, some have been the wrong decision. But uh, in this particular case, you need to give a, a graceful exit, if you will, to a situation by. Uh, a, Evaluating this, the consequences of your circumstance, which some in some cases mean, you know, we got to cut this program over the next three or four years by five or ten percent a year, as opposed to just chopping it off. Sure. An example of that is, uh, uh, you know, we had a program and still do where we provide state scholarships for students, and in my understanding, in this case there were a uh, uh, significant number of. Scholarships that were granted, and they were granted to students who qualified as a ten percent highest in their the, the class, performance scholarship, and it was performance, and that's something we introduced when I was governor, and uh, then it was one for the the uh, students that needed uh, financial support, a little different program. But the scholarships were announced, okay, so the kids counted on them. Mm -hmm. And they got them because of of their commitment and hard work and so forth. And then they pulled them for lack of funding. That's pretty petty. And uh, whose fault is it? Well, it's the legislator's fault. It's the fault of the system. And uh, – it's going to have to be rectified, and I believe the legislature will come back under a sweep or any number of things and do it. But unfortunately, the damage has been done. And you know, college is just around the corner. Some of these colleges initiate That's their month. entry in in August, and and some of these kids are just you know left with gosh, they had a, looking forward to a, a college uh, education, and it's. Uh, it, they're told it's not going to happen. I think it will happen. I think the legislature will go back and say, hey, we've got to honor a commitment. This is a breach of trust. The state gives a commitment out that they're going to reward these kids, and then they pull it, and that's, that's a terrible thing to do. So anyway. You mentioned
0: the the sweep, and as far as I understand, this is the first time— um, the reverse sweep hasn't occurred immediately after. Well, I... we're
1: using this terminology as though it's kind of a rug deal. You can sweep it under the rug and you can pull <laughs> it back out, and that's not necessarily the case. The legislature is, is determined, I think, to try and be responsive, uh, but you've got to do that by coming together. You can't you know, it'd be split, uh, and uh, you know, got you got a legislative session in Mozilla, You got one in Juno, uh, and and people dig in, and uh, you know they're they're reluctant. It's everybody's a little bit that way, reluctant to uh, give in to the other guy when you got a dispute and you think you're right. But in this case, you've got to come together because you're elected to come together and address the problems, and and division is just not acceptable as an alternative it's got to be okay come on together we we'll sit down and we'll figure it or stand up i don't care what you do and address the problem and figure out how we can compromise and get the best response to the citizens of alaska because we have that obligation to provide that service fine you can cut you can reduce but sometimes uh, it's not appropriate to just chop it off when you were governor uh what what situation stands out
0: um in your mind, maybe when you had maybe your your biggest hurdle or issue with the legislature?
1: Well, we had a problem because we cut a program and it wasn't it was a popular program. it was uh, it was funding for seniors sixty five and over.
0: Oh, they uh, longevity? Yeah,
1: and uh, the the idea was okay. Uh, but what was happening, the legislature came back and said, we're gonna curtail the program, and no more funding for those that turn 65 tomorrow or the next day or the next day. So we're creating two different classes of citizens, 65-year-olds who got it, and those that came in after the program was closed, they didn't get it anymore. Uh And uh, I didn't feel that that was fair and equitable, so we cut it. And there was a a significant response from those 65-year-olds who had been given it. When you pass out money, you develop a constituency— and you know the governor's commitment to try and fully fund the dividend it'd be great if 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 we could afford it but we can't afford it without cutting programs and what programs are most important and that's the legislature's job i'd like to see a profit and loss for example on all the routes that the ferry system takes so we could logically say well you know this this one deserves a continuation, because it generates X revenue. And this one d- doesn't quite meet that criteria, so we're going to have to re- re- de- uh, put that one down so, to a lower, lower priority. So y- y- it's a reprioritization is what it is.
0: So I wanted, I wanted to ask you about the ferry system because yeah. you have a connection to Ketchikan, and right now there's um, been some, some cuts, and there's talks right now of the Inland Boatman's Union maybe going on strike.
1: Well, you know, I I, yeah, I would hope that it wouldn't happen. It's not a good time to strike right? from a union point of view because it's, what can the state give them that they don't already have? I've what they to, need are the continuation of the jobs.
0: I've talked to other people in labor who, who said the same thing. They said this is not a good time to be doing a strike. No,
1: I, so maybe it won't happen. I would hope it doesn't because if it happens, uh, then the ferry system is going to shut down. Uh, people are going to uh, look to other means to travel to Alaska, and particularly southeastern Alaska. We have th- three areas that feed us in the southern part of the state. One is Highway 16 from Prince George to Prince Rupert. You can drive to oh. Prince Rupert. Good highway, nice deal. And then we have a highway up the outs- inside of, of, of Vancouver Island. that comes up from Victoria and uh, goes to Port Hardy. That's, or, 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 port hardy is at the end of vancouver island if you've ever been on a boat or going through queen charlotte port hardy is the northern end of vancouver island the ferry goes from there to prince Rupert every other day and then uh uh that is the the two feeder systems we have that come in uh, to southeastern uh from from the south and then of course we have the alaska ferry from bellingham And that comes in currently once a week. So that's how tourists and visitors come in to Southeast. And then they can go up to Haines and drive to Fairbanks, drive to Anchorage, or whatever, and come Mm -hmm. into the state that way. I've done
0: the Haines ferry multiple times. Did you know?
1: I was on there about six weeks ago. But it's getting pretty expensive. This state, unfortunately, uh, is a political process in the ferry system. For example, the 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 management doesn't just have the responsibility of running a ferry system, they have the responsibility of running the airports and the highways mm-hmm. and those that are in the marine area professionally say hey you've got to have experts it's not that the commissioner that's running the three responsibilities isn't committed, but the individual expertise of a marine engineer associated with a ferry system that's got the continuity of policy decisions that don't go in and out with a change of administration, kind of like the Alaska Railroad. Alaska Railroad has theoretically railroad people associated with it. But the ferry system has got to compete, if you will, with the management capability and time commitments of a commissioner who's got those other responsibilities of highways, airports, and the ferry so system.
0: Th- there's been some talk, uh, I think for a while, but maybe more recently, about privatizing or somewhat quasi you know, kind of treating the ferry system like the, like the railroad. It's a... Quasi kind of private. What do you think about that? Is that well, a good the idea? railroad
1: is not privatized. I mean, it's in the real estate business as well as the railroad business, and it generates funds from real estate that they have in Whittier, that they have here in Anchorage and Fairbanks as well. The ferry system doesn't have that luxury of having an outside revenue source. It is what it is. And it's got a tremendous seasonal spike because, uh, uh, you know, you, you get that ship. Uh, ready to sail and if you got 50 r- passengers and 500 it costs you about the same to run the ship mm-hmm. so you've got to promote if you will traffic and what i think we're missing is a different type of tourist. we pride ourselves now in being the number one cruise ship destination for american travelers to come to alaska and we're running about 1.2 million cruise ships passengers to Alaska. It's yeah, very so, popular. So Virtually many. every line of any significance comes to Alaska now. It's
0: almost double our population of but, visitors. But,
1: but, you get four ships in Juneau or a Ketchikan at one time, you're looking at uh, 12,000 or 16,000 people wandering the streets or going on tours. It's big, it's big business. But What we're missing is the guy and his wife who uh, retired from the steel mills. And they got a pickup, and uh, they got a little camper, and they want to go see America. They want to go see Alaska, but we do not promote that. Those kind of tourists are designed primarily for the ferry, where they can bring their camper with their pickup and uh, go and wander into Juneau or Ketchikan or go over to Hollis, to Prince of Wales. I talked to a couple the other day, and uh, they had left their can camp- they they'd left their campers in. Be- Bellingham because the price was too high, in their opinion. So they got on the ferry with the Jeeps and did bed and breakfast all over, and they drove almost 500 miles over in Purcell Island. They loved it. Uh-huh. But the problem is you've got a day boat from Ketchikan to Hollis, and then you go Craig Kluwok, Heidelberg, up to uh, 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 the north end at Kaufman Cove, and there's a terminal there. And there's no ferry. The idea was to build a terminal, and they built another terminal over in Mitkoff, which is Petersburg, and then you got Wrangell, and you could get off, if you will, uh, at the northern end and go to, if you want to go to Juneau, you could go over to the, that, that, that day ferry to uh, to, to Mitkoff, Mitkoff Island and then catch the Alaska ferry to Juneau. Or Skagway, or wherever you want to go, or you could stay on the ferry and go to Wrangell if you want to go south. The point is, we do not promote that type of tourist, and that type of tourist spends a lot of money.
0: I think another kind of tourist, maybe they don't spend as much money, but um, you know, younger folks under forty, people like me that I travel a lot, and I don't want to go on a cruise ship all, all the time. I want to go get somewhere and kind of go on my own, um, and kind of a younger, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, Age people that's who want to get on the ferry and maybe go explore a little bit. And that's well, another group of people. The
1: problem with the ferries is, is, you know, they're under the gun. So uh, they're losing money. So they increase the fares. And when you increase the fares, you lose revenue yeah. because, you know, the airplane is always there. And it's quick, and it's expensive, but, you know, you don't have to. Maybe anyway. they should start
0: serving alcohol on those ferries again, because years ago they used to have uh, the bars.
1: The bars are
0: closed. I know, but if that, to me, if you're going to a boat, I want to have a drink.
1: Well, that's fine. And you can have a drink, but you can have only beer. You can only have two beers with your dinner.
0: But you have to bring them yourself, right? You can... No,
1: they'll sell you the beer. Oh, okay. But, but the they bar... won't sell it. The bars closed. Yep. You get that in the dining room. Two uh, glasses of beer. That's all.
0: So something else I want to ask you is, you know, you've run for governor, you were governor and you've been in the Senate, you know, when you run for office, you say things and sometimes circumstances change. You, you make t- you know, promises or commitments. It seems like I've went back and watched some of um, Governor Dunleavy's, you know, debates, and he essentially said they weren't going to cut anything. You know, no cuts to education or healthcare or whammy or PC. And now obviously that's been a much different, I mean, how, how much do you have to balance, you know, what you say in the campaign compared to what you do when you're governor and you have to make decisions and, the circumstances change.
1: Well, circumstances certainly change, but, uh, you know, you have an obligation uh, when you tell people what you believe in. Uh, some of them believe in you, and they elect you or they don't elect you. And so you're held accountable for what you state and what you say. And, uh, you know, the current governor or the last governor or any of us, uh, there's no exceptions to that. you got to be held accountable for what you tell people you want to do, and uh, you don't necessarily get it all done. You might not get any of it done, hmm. but uh, you know they, 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 you still have that kind of a, of a commitment with the people who did elect you.
0: So I want to ask you about something going back further. I heard a story about um, I don't know if you were governor, or maybe you were commissioner, but there was some cow, cows, on some island. Oh yeah, off
1: che- th- Island. Or, yeah, it's a kind of an interesting deal because we have a policy within our our federal management of not uh, supporting new species to be inter- introduced, uh, rather maintain the natural species that are already here. And they call it exotics, exotic mm-hmm. animals. So if you want to bring an exotic animal on, federal land, you've got a problem because the feds won't support it. I
0: don't think of a cow being exotic. But <laughs> well, uh, it dif- it's
1: exotic. It w- <laughs> Let's put it this way. This was years ago, pro- probably 80, 90 years ago. Uh, Chekhov Island, uh, off Kodiak, and I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but I'm pretty close. Uh, there was an effort to try and set up some commercial cattle ranching. And that's been tried in Kodiak and the general area before because you have a climate area where they, they, it, the, there's enough grain, grass, uh, natural foliage for them to forage around and exist. So uh, on this island, they, uh, they introduced some very, very strong-breeded uh, Aberdeen Scottish uh, c- cattle <laughs> that were tough to begin with, or they wouldn't breathe it. They brought them in, and then they started to try and make a go of it financially with the ranch. But there are a couple of strikes against it. The island has no lee side of any consequence, so there's no. Ideal place to load and unload the cattle. So when they That's brought the problem. cattle in, the barge that they had them on was agrounded, and the cattle jumped overboard and went ashore. What? And that was into that for a while until the next cattle rancher came in and tried to make a go of it. And uh, uh, so it was on and off, on and off. And then the more sophistication of the management concept on federal land was well, you got this exotic that are not natural to the island, and we ought to remove them. So they announced that they were going to annihilate, basically kill them. How many cows were there? Oh, I don't know, maybe 80 to 120. They're they're just wild, they're feral wild cows. Oh, absolutely, and they bred and took care of themselves and so forth, and there are a couple of shacks there. And uh, so I thought, you know, these cows, what is the objection on an area where nobody's living and they're, managed to propagate, why don't we leave them alone instead of, so I made an issue of it. And then uh, I decided, well, maybe I ought to send some of my people out there and take a look see what's going on. So I said, uh, the Coast Guard does, you know, a lot of activities out of Kodiak, and they're coming and going all the time. So I phoned up the Coast Guard Admiral, and I said, hey, do you ever go out in a training mission or anything? He said, sure, we go out. I said, well, one of these times if I send a couple of guys up, can you drop them off in the island? Because there were a couple of shacks there. And uh, the guy said, sure, we'll do it. So we set it up. The kids went out. They had a radio with them. They landed in the helicopter up in the little hill. And this is a story as told to me. Helicopter took off. And the kids went over and looked down. And here are these cows looking up at this strange contraption. (laughs) And they started marching together up to where the kids were. And the kids didn't like the look in their eyes. And thought, so, geez, you know, we get tangled up with those cows. This is not oh going to be a good day. I mean, they could... These are wild cows. They had horns. So they got scared and got on the radio and pleaded with the helicopter, <laughs> come back and
0: get them out of <laughs> This there. governor,
1: this Murkowski guy to so, us go
0: to this. <laughs> but
1: then somebody tried to uh, commercialize it. And the idea was we got to load the cows on a barge and take them into Kodiak. And they got a few cows on the barge. And then somebody in Kodiak was willing to slaughter them. But then the feds came in and said, well, you just can't slaughter them. They've got to be federally inspected. And somebody said, well, we can get somebody out from Anchorage. Well, then they said you've got to have it inspected in a federally approved slaughterhouse. So by the time the bureaucracy got through, the commercialization was dead. There's no way. So every time there is a new group Uh, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's one of their checklists to take a shot at Checkerhoff Island and the cows. So as far as I know, the cows are still there, and (laughs) and a few of the other folks have been gracious enough to uh, commit to, why don't we leave some? Oh, the excuse was they're eating the seagull eggs. And I said, well, uh, okay, but the seagulls got a lot of places to go and lay their eggs. But the cows... You're not going to go anywhere other than on, stay on Rhode the island. island. So anyway, if you're <laughs> looking for a place to go and you haven't been there, try it.
0: Maybe I'll, maybe I'll head down there one day and make a, make a video. Yeah, um, should. Another story I heard was something involving a totem pole. Oh,
1: for heaven's sakes.
0: And uh, you had to get a totem we pole. We
1: had uh well this is when I was in, in state government. I was commissioner of economic development under uh, Hickel, and, and uh, at that time— the Japanese had been in competition for a designation for headquarters of the, for the Olympics. And this was, I believe, in 1970. And uh, they didn't get it. So Japan was decided that they had to do something. So they put together an expo, and they called it Expo 70. And somebody in the legislature, I think it was Brad Phillips or somebody, decided that Alaska should participate. And then the question came up how? And so we decided that um, we'd open it up to submissions of ideas, and somebody came up with the world's tallest totem pole. Well, so <laughs> If it was going to be the world's tallest totem pole, somebody had to find out where the existing totem pole was, and it was down in Yesler Way in Seattle at the foot of, uh, I guess, Capitol Hill or something. But anyway, it was there, and it was 120 feet long. So that was the mission. and. You know, government has a way of saying, yeah, we ought to do that. And everybody says, and the legislature particularly says, yeah, yeah. Well, somebody's got to do it. (laughs) And it was designated to my department because we had tourism. So we solicited, well, who wants to carve the world's largest totem pole? And the village of Cake, which is in southeastern Alaska, south of Juneau, said, we'll do it as long as we get the totem after it's over. And I thought, well, that's fine. So – Time went on and it was getting later and somebody said, "Where, where, how's that totem coming?" I said, "I don't know. I better check on it." <laughs> well, we checked on it and found that design hadn't been made. So we said to Cake, "Hey, got to have a design." So they brought in a roll of butcher paper and rolled it down the hall and it was sketched with pencil, you know, design and so forth. So was like one hundred and twenty some feet long. Or? Well, it wasn't that long, but it was anyway. It was supposed to be on Then that was the first thing, and we said. We didn't know one design from another, so we said, yeah, that looks fine. But then we had to get a totem, we had to get a pole, and you had to get a logger. And across from Cake, uh, uh, there was a logger uh, logging at that time, and he was uh, very, very supportive of any state activities. So we said, we need a hundred and hundred, I think we said, we need a hundred and thirty foot pole. And he said, well, yeah, I can get you one. But he said, I can't get it out. And he said, what do you mean you can't get it out? And he said, well, we buck up our trees so we can move them out on our trucks. And the trucks have to go around curves. And you put 130, there's no way we can get it out. I said, well, what, what do you do then? And he said, well, we'd have to take some curves out of the road. And I said, well, you know, if you're going to provide the totem pole, you're the only game in town. You'll have to figure out how to do it. So they did it. And they brought two poles over Uh, To Tidewater, and they put them on a barge that we got from Alaska Lumber and Pulp. And the idea was, since Cake didn't have carvers anymore and didn't have any tools, we're going to take it up to Haynes to a gentleman by the name of Carl Heinmiller, And he was an artist who was trying to reestablish Native culture and arts and so forth. And he agreed to carve it for a fee. And so we went over to CAKE and said, well, we got the carver. All we need is your money. And they said, well, you know, we're a little short on money. So anyway, <clears throat> we had to pass the hat in the legislature to fund the totem pole. And was it expensive? Carl was looking for money, you know, every six months to pay his carver. Not six months, every month. And it went on and on. He wasn't very happy. So anyway, it was finally done, and they covered it up. Now, Carl Heinmiller had a patch over his eye, black patch. So he's quite distinguished in that regard, and uh they they peeled off the totem pole and the Japanese were there, and the chamber was there, and the state officials were there and went up up, up up and at the top of the totem pole was a figure of this guy with a patch over his eye <laughs> and cake did not like that; they were very offended, and of course, there was not much you could do other than that was the, Hein Miller's way of getting even, I guess. It's a signature. <laughs> so then we had to get it to Tokyo, not Tokyo. We had to get it to uh, to Japan, and uh, so we got uh, uh, one of the one of the log ships, and we had to move it uh, from Haynes on a log ship to uh, Kobe, I believe, and uh, uh, the ship was able to take it because they had several lifts and laid it down. And we got, to, got and I got a call from our friend in Japan said, uh, I got some good news and bad news. I said, nah, that's an old saying in the U.S., but I'm, I'd i rather hear the good news. He said, the good news is the totem pole's here. I said, what's the bad news? He said, we have to secure uh, a guards 24 hours a day around the totem pole. I said, what do you mean? He said, the reason is it's deemed to be an object of art by the Japanese customs. And the Japanese customs, you don't argue with them. They simply say, hey, this is an object of art, which we couldn't argue with. Okay, then, so we bought a couple of guards for whatever it was. And then we had to have an escort take it to get it on the highway. And it was too big to get around from the docks of the highway. And we had to go here or there. Finally got it to the... Expo 70, and Don Dickey and my wife and I and, and Mrs. Dickey went up to see it. And we were about ready to lift it, and they said, Oh, by the way, we have to alter it. And we said, What do you mean alter it? Well, we have to put a steel I beam in the back. And we said, Why? Because typhoons in Japan, totem pole blow down. <laughs> we said, Look, we lived in Alaska all our lives. I never heard of a totem pole blowing down. and. It didn't make any difference. When you begin an argument with the Japanese, you're better off to just concede and go ahead. So we put the steel I-beam in the back and it was there for Expo 70. But the story is not over. Expo 70 was a success and cake wanted their totem pole. So we had to reverse the process and ship going uh, over to uh, Sitka, I guess, had the totem pole and uh, they brought the ship over Uh, to Cake, or they had a barge, and uh, then they didn't have a dock in Cake, so they figured, well, we'd put the totem pole on, put it in the water and float it in and drag it up in the beach. Oh, wow. Put it in the water, you know what happened? It sunk, because Because it had an I-beam. The steel I-beam. In the back.
0: Oh, my gosh. And that had not been anticipated. How how deep was it?
1: Well, I don't know, 30 feet or so. So it wasn't like...
0: Super deep, but
1: well, it was deep enough to get wet, <laughs> and then some. So he had to get an A-frame, which is a log deal with an A-frame, so you could pull it up without breaking it. Take it up on the hill, and it's there today. And they had a potlatch, and I don't know. What to do. anyway, so it's kind of a, those are kind of things you get of, into that you don't expect to go that long or be that expensive, but it's a good lesson. Be aware, beware.
0: I like what you said about the legislature the governments have these
1: ideas sometimes and then they don't realize
0: yeah, somebody well, has to do it uh, that's right anyway so you mentioned the olympics I, I just wondered maybe you didn't have any involvement but in the 90s they tried to p- yes, uh, pitch a i was t-
1: over in korea i lost a camera i went to the men's room hung up my camera and uh, walked out went back for my camera it was gone so, yeah, so this we, was we were- an anchorage a- anchorage's effort uh was a very genuine one and very worthwhile and uh, very competitive, but they didn't get the Olympics. They went, to, I think, to one um, was Norway,
0: uh, Germany, I think, and then one was Norway. Yeah, somewhere the, in in Europe, that the was, skiing area. It was ninety two and ninety four, and that was the time they had um, changed because before the winter and summer Olympics were yeah. in the same year, and that was the time they they uh, staggered it yeah. every. So we were the pick for both years. And I have some really nice posters I found at a at a used secondhand shop. Um, what's the Birdzall Byron Birdzall? By so Ray I have Burrito. two of his pictures of uh, Anchorage, yeah. Anchorage's design for 92 yeah, and 94. It was a
1: good job done by the Anchorage promoters, and I wish I could remember all their names. Do you think uh, we could
0: ever get it down the road or it's too well yeah, it talk about it?
1: just it takes uh, uh, The fact that we've been there once, I think, uh, buys us a little credibility. And if the community and the, and the state uh, uh, you know, feel that uh, they're in a position to underwrite and you've got to, you know, put in some money for facilities oh, very and exp- infrastructure. Billi- billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. It's not a cheap deal. But um, I, I think it would be much to the credit of Alaskans to consider it in the future. And it's a worthwhile project.
0: Well, Governor Murkowski, I want to thank you again for uh, for doing yeah. this. It's uh...
1: Well, thank you. It's been fun. And reminiscing is always, uh, you know, something that the uh, older you get, the more you talk about your health. You know, you talk to a guy over there you're, and you say, "Well, how you feel?" Well, well, pretty soon you're talking anyway.
0: You look good. How old are you now?
1: Oh, I'm eighty something like that.
0: And you're still—I just—it's incredible. You're just—you're oh, well, yeah. there. You—all yeah, the stories yeah, yeah. going back a long time.
1: Yep. Well, a we should—we should do
0: more of these because I think you probably have a million more stories you could tell me and talk about. Sure, so. we
1: do it once in a while. It's your pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Maybe
0: I'll try to come down to Wrangle one day. I heard it's
1: do that. Yeah, it's a nice little town. We only got two stop signs. Uh, no stoplights, but it works fine. And uh, uh, we've got uh, daily air service from Alaska Airlines. We've got ferry service. Uh, fishing is great. i'll oh, look, yeah, because a my friend a lot of room in the. Uh, we're putting a new boat harbor in, so we've got a lot of room for small boats. My friend has a cabin out there,
0: so maybe I'll come out yeah. and come say hi Do you sometime. Have a cabin up there. My friend has a cabin out there. They've had is it for it a long up time. The river. Or? I'm not exactly sure where it is. I yeah. just know it's in McCarthy.
1: Well, is a little unique of southeastern towns because it's it's further inland. Then the others, and we're on the water, don't get me wrong, but it's islands all over, and we're, mm-hmm. we're back kind of tucked away, and we're right near the mouth of the Stikine River, which is navigable for 126 miles. Get a boat? Up to north, yeah, by, we used to be stern wheelers. See, they didn't, when they were trying to build the Atlantic, transatlantic cable, you know, from U.S. to Europe, mm-hmm. okay, they kept breaking it it kept breaking. They'd go lay some cable and hook it together and it would break and break. And so somebody said, well, look, we ought to get to Europe via Alaska and Canada by going across Bering Straits. So they started in and it was financed and so forth. And they got to a place called Telegraph Creek, which is the head of navigation of the Stikine River out of Wrangell. And then they finally finished the Atlantic cable. So they dumped it and that left all the cable and the name and so forth there. But Telegraph Creek is ahead of navigation. You can drive from the Elkhorn Highway down to decent down down to Telegraph, and that's how Wrangell used to get its cars, bring them down on the on the riverboat. But oh, wow. uh, anyway, it's the fastest navigable river in North America. It's beautiful. It cuts through the Coast Range. The glaciers are exquisite, uh, and right now they they use jet boats on on the river pretty much, day boats. But uh, anybody that wants to uh, little adventure in a part of the world that doesn't see many people. Maybe I'll have to come come check it out sometime. Yes, please do. All right, well, Governor, thanks thank again. You, enjoy enjoy,
0: you uh, enjoy your stay in Anchorage, here, and hopefully we'll do this again sometime.
1: Well, we got a wedding, so uh, oh really, a wedding in the family, the first one. Yeah, Anchorage, yeah. yeah big it's in, in Anch- big party. Yep. Maybe I'll be a wedding crasher. Yeah, why not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, I Governor. You got. I know there's a lot of lot of salmon, a lot of halibut going to be prepared, and so. If, Somebody's hungry, come on around. Just give me an address. Okay. All right. Thanks again, Governor. Thanks a lot,
0: Jeff. All right, folks. uh, If you want to do a podcast or have an idea for a podcast, let me know, and we'll talk to you next time.